Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Well, my friends, thank you so much for returning and joining us in Sangha. So nice to see everyone's faces this evening. So tonight I'm going to try and give a little summary of the last few Dharma talks that we've had. It's taken quite a few weeks. We've been exploring what I've referred to as the heart-mind qualities of the spiritual seeker. It's the heart-mind qualities that the Buddha talks about in relationship to being successful on the path. And sometimes some of the qualities are referenced as being qualities that the Buddha required of his students. And if he didn't see these qualities, there would be the sense that maybe maybe the Eightfold Path is not the path for you kind of thing. And maybe it's like college admissions, I don't know. Maybe you have to show the, the qualities before you get to get into the Sangha. But um, these qualities are important. They're hugely important. And we talk about them quite less than we do, say, the Enlightenment factors or the Eightfolds of the Path or the Jhana factors. This list is taken from quite a few different suttas. Um, so there just isn't one sutta. It's just throughout the teachings, the Buddha mentions qualities. Some of these qualities come from the discourses where the Buddha is teaching his son. And it explains like in the teaching of his son, the Dharma, you see that he mentions these qualities as something to focus on. So that's where we're getting this uh, material. But I'll read down the list and then I wanna reframe it a little bit and and then just talk about the interconnectedness of these different qualities to see if I can just bring this home and tie it in a little bow for us. So the qualities we've discussed are as follows. Truthfulness, commitment to be truthful, a commitment to be observant, heedfulness, which we've described as being the opposite of complacency. Heedfulness is the willingness not to settle for less to continue to deepen our practice on the way to liberation, to keep practicing, to keep deepening, to keep awakening into the highest potential of freedom and happiness. So heedfulness, we're supposed to be heedful. The next one is urgency, an energy of urgency in our practice. And I use the original terms, which is Samwega and Pasada. And, but all in this talk, I might just say urgency, because that's what it is, this urgency to practice. And lastly, appropriate attention. Appropriate attention, as I think we talked about last week, appropriate attention is moment to moment looking at the world through the lens of the Four Noble Truths. And looking at the duties of each one of the truths and seeing if we can bring that into the present moment. Where is the suffering? What is the cause of my suffering? Can I fabricate or engage this moment in a way to lessen the suffering or plant seeds of long-term happiness in the next moment, plant seeds for the next moment? So truthfulness, observance, heedfulness, urgency, 
and attention. And when we see lists like these, it can seem really didactic, which it is the way I'm, te the way I'm teaching it, but I would encourage you to think of each one of these terms as an experience, not as a list of ideas, that each one is an experience. And that as you mature in practice, you might be able to write all these down and you'll know what the, the terms are. But more importantly, when you hear the word, you'll be able to identify an experience inside yourself. What is it for you to be observant, right? At this point in your practice, in this point in your life, what does it mean for you to have spiritual urgency, right? A real interest in meditating every day or a sense of urgency to go sit a retreat, right? Or to come on Wednesday, you know, whatever that urgency, what is that for you? So when you think of these words, I would really invite you to personalize them and remember that they're just words until you transform them into practice. And then they become so much more than that. It's helpful to know what they are because then you can, if you don't know what the words are and you don't know what the list is, it's hard to look for them. But once you start looking for them, it really becomes about direct experience. So I want us to remind ourselves of that as we summarize what we've been talking about. I've been framing the last few podcasts, the last few Dharma talks, by saying these are the these qualities are qualities of a spiritual seeker. That kind of resonates with me. But I also want to go a little bit deeper and a little bit more purposeful into the goal of the path. And so I just want to reframe this for a minute because I think this is important. When we say that we're on a spiritual path, the challenge with the word spiritual is that it can be very vague. And the word spiritual can mean one thing in one moment and one thing in another moment. Sometimes the word spirituality and, you know, in general is kind of like I'm in touch with my higher power or I'm connected to, you know, the highest expression of who I am, something outside of myself, something greater than myself. And then sometimes we use like the word spiritual to kind of identify traits in other beings that we really admire. Like someone who's compassionate and kind and generous, we could say, wow, that person's just like a real spiritual being. That person's a loving, kind, generous, spiritual being. So the word spiritual can kind of move around a lot, which is fine. But I wanted to reground these qualities directly into the Eightfold Path because I think this is going to bring a little bit more clarity to it. And so we might ask ourselves, was the Buddha actually on a spiritual quest? Or can we reframe that question and say, maybe he was on a human quest. Maybe it was just a existential quest. Maybe his quest was really what any human being is on when we ask ourselves, how can I be happy? Is Can I be happy in this lifetime? And what would it be to be a happy person, a contented being? And so when we look at the Buddha's journey, sure, Buddhism is a religion in some places, it's spiritual in others. Some people describe it as a psycho-spiritual path. Um, but when we look at what the Buddha experienced and what he did, what we really see is a human quest, right? These basic human questions of what is it to be a human being? How, how can I show up in the world? How do I free myself from stress and discontent? Do I have a higher purpose in being in the world among other beings. So for a moment, I just want to reframe this as a very human, normalizing quest that we are all on as human beings because everyone in our life at some point 
has noticed that living in the world is very stressful. There's a lot of suffering all around us. There's a lot of fear and discontent. And all of us at some point ask ourselves, man, is there some way to alleviate some of, some of this? Is there a way to kind of take the load off a bit? Is there a way to like completely transcend it? Because that would be wonderful. So this is a real common human question the Buddha was asking. It was a human quest more than anything. And so I wanted to reframe it that way. And I wanted to highlight the fact that the Buddha was asking himself, you know, he sees the three sights, aging, illness, death. He comes from this ignorant complacency of being wealthy and privileged and hidden away from the suffering of the world to the degree that that was possible and to the degree the story was true. But let's say it is. And then the Buddha sees suffering. He really has this strong sort of awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping moment where he realizes that suffering is so a part of the human experience. And then he asks himself, what is the true potential of human beings? Is it possible that in spite of impermanence, which seems to break every <laughs> break everything, right? Demolish everything, relationships go, our bodies go, civilizations rise and fall. I mean, everything crumbles. In light of all that, and really touching down into that suffering, he asks the big human question, is there a way out? Is it possible to have real contentment in light of all the suffering we see? That's such a sort of specific human potential that he's questioning, right? And this brings us back to the fact that uh, when we see throughout the, the suttas, when the Buddha says, you know, I teach one thing and one thing only, stress and the relieving of stress, suffering and the relieving of suffering, because that was really what the Buddha was asking. We can call that a spiritual question or a spiritual quest, but it's very human, right? It's very existential. It's tied into who we are as human beings, whether we're formally walking on a path. Most of us at some point have asked that question really seriously. So it's in asking of that question that the Eightfold Path arises. And it's in the building of this path that these five qualities become known to the Buddha as the heart-mind qualities that are required for success. And so we might just look at truthfulness and observance, heedfulness, urgency, and attention as, instead of spiritual qualities, we might just say, these are the qualities necessary for any human heart that strives for happiness and well-being, right? Any human heart that's longing for more contentment, relief from stress and discontent, start here. This is where we would start. And when we relate it to the Eightfold Path, we can say, yes, it's implicit or maybe even explicit that the Buddha says, hey, if we don't have these qualities the journey is going to be tough. The Eightfold Path is going to be a rougher ride than it already is. And we know that it's a, it's a challenge, you know, for the most dedicated person. So we can look at it that way. But I would also invite us to look at this in the context. If, if true happiness is what we're seeking, then here's where we begin in our hearts. This is where we begin. And so I wanted to, with that in mind, I wanted to go down the list and just hopefully show you all in one talk, because we've done this over several talks, all in one talk, why the Buddha might think these qualities are so important for a heart that wants happiness, for a mind that wants freedom. 
And you'll see, I mean, there's plenty of ways to do this. I'm just going to mention three frameworks that spoke to my heart when I was uh, putting this together, but there's lots of ways to look at this. But these are just some that strike me as being interesting. So why are these traits something that the Buddha encourages us to cultivate? The first thing I that comes to my mind when I look at these traits is the fact that the mind, as we know, mistakes momentary happiness or sense happiness for the highest happiness. We come into the world making this, hate to use the word mistake, but let's say it's an ignorance or a delusion. Let's use more formal Buddhist language. We come into the world with this delusion where we mistake the, the momentary little bites of happiness, right, which the Buddha sort of refers to as sort of junk food, this non-nutritive happiness, and we mistake it for the greater happiness, right? This possibility or potential for full happiness or contentment, so we say. And so we begin there. We begin with this delusion. And these habits of being dependent on moment-to-moment -moment sense pleasure creates an actual dependency in the heart-mind. We create habits where we're constantly seeking outside distractions, outwardly directed energy from what could really satiate us. And it's not just that we're reaching for it. The, the key, the take-home here is that we mistake it for actual happiness. That's the real key, is that as we're doing all these things, the mind's like, well, this is as good as it gets. Great. I'm just going to download another episode. I'm just going to drink another beer. I'm just going to distract in another way. So it's the mistake, the mistaking of one thing for the other that we need to remember that the mind is doing that. So we, we live in a blind spot of self-satisfaction and complacency by nature. That's the, again, that's the Buddha in, in the castle. And so we come in that way. We start that way, right? Now, it's because of this mistake that we need some heedfulness. Because if we're starting off mistaking momentary sense pleasure for an ultimate happiness, we're going to need something to shake up the heart, right? To rattle the mind out of its complacency to get us onto the path. So without some heedfulness to shake up the habituation of the mind, we stay complacent. We stay in our ignorance. We stay in our delusion. So we need to have a commitment to not rest on our laurels, so to speak, right? And to be really inquiring into the world. What is my true potential as a human being? How can I show up in the world? What is my true purpose? Those kind of enlivening questions, right? That keep us involved and mindful of our actual lives, the feet on the ground, the heart in the world way of living. So... The Buddha said being heedful woke him up from a sense of intoxication, that he had been intoxicated with sensuality, and that his quest to be truthful combined with heedfulness to allow him to practice. And so the Buddha had two things. He was surrounded by sensuality, but he had a desire for truth. And the truth he had asked himself is, is this all there is? Is this truly the highest happiness that I can have? Is this truly my highest potential, my fullest fulfillment? Am I really content? And the answer was no. And then heedfulness kicks in and it's like, whoa, okay, then what am I going to do about that? So heedfulness 
and a commitment to truthfulness is what, boom, puts our feet walking on the path, right? That's what keeps us going in the direction of the Eightfold Path, the heedfulness and the truthfulness, because the mind comes in without them, right? Oh, it has the potential to have them, but we don't have a tendency, we're not habituated to it, right? So that's really important to know when we ask ourselves, who cares about heedfulness? Like, and we could probably say, oh, truthfulness, of course, that's a great quality. But when we combine truthfulness with heedfulness, we have this real spark of light that can enliven our path. The second thing that we come in with is that the mind, as you all know, and the heart are creatures of habit. And it turns out that suffering and happiness are habits, right? They get ingrained. <laughs> Anyone who's ever tried to change a habit knows this. They're ingrained, right? We can't change a habit to save our life. But we want to change habits, but they're ingrained. So the heart and the mind is habituated. The mind loves a certain way. The mind hates a certain way. It likes this and dislikes that. And then it gets attached, right? It grabs on and it, it just won't let go. So we come in with this quality of the mind that's very clingy. Our minds cling in both directions. I don't like this and I'm going to cling to not liking it. Oh, this over here is shiny. I really want more of that. I'm going to cling to the desire of getting more of this. So we have this energy we come in with, which is this clinging and aversion, this grasping and pushing away, this liking and disliking. And it's not only that we have those habits, they're strong. <laughs> they run deep in the human experience. And it's because of their strength that we need to cultivate some other qualities to loosen their hold on the mind. And since suffering is a habit, and happiness is a habit, we have to be really attentive to what's going on. So because of this clinginess, because of this aversion, we need to have appropriate attention and we need to have a sense of urgency. So our commitment to be observant is recommended because our habits are unconscious, right? So much of our habituation is not even seen. You know, we walk through our day and it's like we're riding on a hundred different unconscious habits that we do. And then maybe we notice them and we're like, oh yeah, I'd really like to change that about myself or I shouldn't do as much of that. And then boom, we move on. <laughs> we just keep going. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to change that. But anyway, in this moment, I'm going to go do something else. Like we must be committed to observation, and we must be committed to appropriate attention because so much of what we're doing is unconscious. And if we don't consciously bring attention to it, if we don't intentionally observe, man, we can, sometimes I can go, I mean, gosh, I hate to say this out loud because it makes me kind of depressed, but I can go years writing on an unconscious habit and never see it. And then I suddenly tune into it and it's like, damn, what am I doing? Like, why aren't I noticing that? You know, like, I'm a mindfulness person. Why didn't I notice I was doing this thing over here or clinging or craving this other thing? And so this insistence that the Buddha has, that we have appropriate attention, that we look at the world through the Four Noble Truths, that we are observant moment to moment, is because we come in not doing that. 
right? Our natural habit is to be unawake, unaware, and on autopilot. So these habits wouldn't be such a big deal if our mind didn't come in with the opposite habituation so strongly. So when we look at these traits, I would invite you to consider when, whenever you see them or whenever you practice with them, think first, okay, I'm probably doing the opposite, right? So let me see, this is the antidote to something. This is the antidote to something. So you can see if the Buddha is taking on a student, he's gonna look at the student and ask, is this student committed to really being attentive? Is this student really going to be heedful? Is this student really going to uh, be observant, really willing to observe what's going on? Because without that, it doesn't matter how many tools you use, how many folds of the path you memorize, everything we do on the path is observation and attention. And the energy of heedfulness and the energy of truthfulness fuses all of these actions. So those have to be a backdrop. You can sort of begin to see that, yeah, without them, the practice kind of falls apart if we don't have some energy of these habits. So the third uh, framework I wanted to, to offer was this. And this is the hardest one. This is the hardest one. To understand happiness, we must understand suffering. And I know that may come off as trite or obvious, but really listen to that. In order to understand happiness, we have to understand suffering. The key to happiness is understanding the nature of suffering. And this is so important for the, for the reasons you already know, but I think it's important to reiterate them here. <laughs> the mind hates to suffer. Suffering arises and our first response is, nope, I'm going to go over here and get distracted in some way. Our natural response to suffering is not to lean into it and try to understand it. Our natural inclination is to avoid it, deny it, distract, or placate it in some way. And to do it momentarily, right? We love, the heart and the mind love to put band-aids on things, right? We love to do a whip stitch on something and be like, oh, I've got this. Well, let me just put some hydrogen peroxide and, you know, put a band-aid. And if that doesn't work, we'll add some duct tape and we'll move on. The heart and mind want to distract from suffering. The, the interesting thing about the first noble truth is that the first noble truth is there because suffering is the doorway to happiness. Because the cause of suffering is the cause of happiness and the cause of happiness is the cause of suffering. They're the same mechanisms in consciousness. And the mind has turned away from suffering and replaced the suffering with a lower level of happiness. So the way out is to lean back in the direction of the dukkha, to be on the lookout for the dukkha and look to see the ways we're fabricating that experience. And as we begin to see, oh, I'm playing a role in this, we can then not only let go of the role we play in suffering, but then we can turn that energy and create real happiness, real joy, generosity, kindness, open-heartedness. But in the beginning, we're so pushing away from suffering and so um, complacent with our acceptance of a lower level of happiness that we're not inclined to trade up unless we're committed to truthfulness, we're committed to being observant, and we're heedful. And if we're committed to truthfulness and we're really heedful and we really use appropriate attention, 
then we can use that energy and turn towards suffering and really learn from it and really have an experience of awakening. So we start to see that these heart-mind qualities are spinning around the energy underneath Vipassana. Each moment, all of those energies are there in skillful effort. The challenge with suffering, and this is sort of a caveat, the challenge with suffering is that human heart, <laughs> I always like saying this, the human heart does not have a hard outer shell. It, we protect our hearts dearly, right? It hurts to have a heartache, right? We don't like to see the truth of things sometimes because it just breaks our hearts. We don't like to look at the world and see the intensity of suffering because it's heartbreaking. We don't like to have a relationship that goes south or get divorced or have someone who's sick or die or have someone be dishonest with us because it hurts. So a truthful heart is a vulnerable heart, right? Our commitment to truthfulness, that's one of the qualities, remember, our commitment to truthfulness means a commitment to be vulnerable to the truth of what is so, which is not always good. Sometimes it hurts, it stings, and it's not always something that we really want to do, bringing in back heedfulness. So we have to be heedful with our truthfulness because touching down on suffering is a vulnerable experience. And we like to build a wall, build a wall around the heart. I am so surprised after all these years of meditation, I've, I've been able to break down some of the walls around my heart, but there is significant parts of that wall that are still large and in charge and as tall as ever, right? And on occasion, I'll notice it. It's like, oh, wow, I'm contracted here. I'm not fully open to this experience. I'm not fully vulnerable. Why? Because it scares the crap out of me. That's why I don't want to touch into it, right? I don't have the heedfulness to really experience the truth of that, the courage to be attentive, to have the appropriate attention to that part of myself. And then through Vipassana, boom, right? You wake up and you're able to break through and you can have that appropriate attention and you accept the truth of the moment. You're authentic to the sorrow. And then there's growth, right? There's open-heartedness. There's the undefended heart, as we say. So the, the need to be vulnerable comes back to this urgency, this samwega. And remember that Samwega and Pasada, which we translate as urgency in this moment, those are the emotions the Buddha felt when he really saw suffering, when he touched down on the dukkha with full open-heartedness and was like, oh my gosh, the world is just filled with suffering and everybody ages, gets sick and dies. Everything I know is going to pass away. And he fully leans into that and experiences Samvega, which is the heaviness of the heart, the world weariness. And that's a real vulnerability. And you can't do that without a commitment to seeing the truth because that truth ain't pleasant. It leads to pleasantness, but it's not really initially pleasant and our hearts are programmed to not do that. So the reason that the Buddha invites us to keep this samwega, this world weariness close to our heart, which is essentially the first noble truth, is because we naturally turn away from it. And if we can continue to be vulnerable to the truth of suffering in ourselves and others, and we take that energy and we add some heedfulness, right? And we add some appropriate attention. Now we're knee deep in the Dharma, right? We're beat. We're now we're not in denial. 
We're not hiding, right? We're not pushing away. Now we're really living. We're living fully. Touching suffering fully allows us to touch liberation fully and love fully and be compassionate fully. So again, we see how these traits interact. Samwega is the commitment to keep suffering close to the heart, not to not to wear it as a hair shirt, right? Or not to turn it into some, you know, thing that you're harming yourself over. It's keeping it close to the heart because you're committed to truthfulness and you know that the way of truth is through the door of suffering. And by getting in touch with the suffering, the suffering ends, right? And the the opposite of that is the denial, not wanting to get in touch with the dukkha. This is why sometimes, and my, I include myself in this, sometimes as a teacher, we will retool the Four Noble Truths. And instead of saying the first noble truth, there is suffering, we'll say there is happiness. There is a cause of happiness and there is a path to happiness. And oftentimes when teachers say that, they frame that by saying, you know, this is a more positive way of looking at the path. However, and I do that and I think it's helpful, but remember the reason the, fourth, the first noble truth is that there is suffering is because we keep turning away from it and we need to keep reminding ourselves of the profundity of turning towards it. It's easier to turn towards happiness. That's always like, ooh, happiness, great. The reason the first noble truth does not read there is happiness and reads there is suffering is because that's the harder task. That's the ch more challenging thing we need to do. It's much easier to focus on joy and those other positive qualities. Now, you all know as meditators that the path is awesome. It's, God, I have so much relief of suffering if you continue to practice meditation. We don't focus on Samwega to be depressed or to be existentially down. We do it to light a fire of liberation, right? We do it to invoke that heedfulness. So we can see that at a certain point, all of these traits actually kind of become one energy that moves us forward in our experience. Now, one other thing I'll just say about vulnerability and truthfulness is that <laughs> human beings, as I said earlier, love to be in denial, right? Denial is such a fun place to be because <laughs> you're, you're free from all responsibility. You know, have you ever been really in denial about something and you really wake up to it and you're like, wow, I've been ignoring that for a while. Um, it's such a great place, denial, right? It's warm, it's cozy. Oftentimes when we're in denial, other people are trying to tell us and we're like, you don't know what you're talking about. We blame them for the problem. We blame the outside world. It's a great place to be, relatively speaking, not compared to liberation, but relatively speaking, man, does the heart love to be in a state of denial and deflection. And because of this, right, because of the capacity of the mind to trick itself, and this is important. The mind tricks itself into clinging to old habits, right? You ever try to change a habit and you're about to do the new habit and the mind talks you out of it? And the mind's like, no, no. Like I always use an easy example, which is, you know, eating, not eating something that you really like because that's an easy failure for me. So I'll look at something and I'll say, oh yeah, I'm not going to eat that today. I'm going to eat this healthy thing. And then two minutes later, I'm eating four of whatever it was I just identified that I don't want to do because the mind tricks itself, right? Oh, I'll start tomorrow or I'll get more exercise. You know, we'll start next week. The mind always has 
some excuse or deception or denial for itself, which is why heedfulness is so important. We must be heedful. We must be attentive. We must be observant because we got to catch the mind with its tricks. <laughs> when I was um, first meditating and uh, I was living at a Goinka G center in East Texas. Can't remember the name of it. Domiciri, maybe. Uh, in East Texas, I was living and working at a meditation center, and, and I was really young at the time, and a friend of mine and I had just graduated from college, and we went out there and spent several months uh, meditating, and we kept having this realization about how our habits kept tricking us into, like, not practicing in some way, right? Like, the mind would hide from itself, so we kept joking that we were going to get tattoos on our body that said... It's all a trick. It's all a trick to remind ourselves how sneaky and wily the mind is for meditators, right? It's like before you know it, the hindrances have taken the mind somewhere else, right? It's a hot moment that it takes for the hindrances to carry off the mind in some other direction. So it's just important to know that we have this blind spot. We have this complacency, this ignorance. That's why observation, that commitment to really be discerning, that commitment to really be heedful, that desire to befriend dukkha and make it a part of the direct human experience is so important. That's why all of these qualities are here. And to bring this all down to sort of one word, which I usually don't like to do, but when I was looking at all of these qualities, it strikes me that these qualities are what motivate us, right? It's a type of spiritual motivation to be free, right? It's a motivation to be a certain way, to practice a certain way, to be with each other in a particular way. And we know that the Dharma is about Sangha. It has to be done in community, right? So hard to do this on your own. I mean, it's a, as they say, what a fool's errand to think you can just do it by yourself. It's so tough to do this work without having the love and support and spiritual friendship of others. And that being in community is also a form of heedfulness, right? Because when we're in Sangha, we're asking each other to help observe, right? Hey, I'm, I need, I'm having trouble here. I'm trying to keep my precepts there. And so we're observing ourselves. We're observing each other, right? And we're helping each other be heedful. Coming here every Wednesday, that's an act of heedfulness, like... This inspires us like, oh, we're all going to show up. We're going to practice. Great. Why? Because we have a commitment to truth in our lives, right? This is an expression of that commitment to truthfulness. And then we sit, appropriate attention. We come together and we're like, okay, what's going on in my heart and mind in this moment? We're committed to that. So we can see that these qualities are things that we're already doing. But in the end, when we're motivated to practice, some of these qualities are online in some form of another. We're energized in some way. And so one other thing I'll conclude with when it comes to these qualities. Again, I would invite you to look at these qualities and befriend them as an actual action, right? In your own practice, in your own life. And ask yourself, what is it for me to be truthful? Where in my life do I feel like I could be more truthful, right? I was thinking the other day when I was reviewing the, these qualities, truthfulness, and this thought popped into my head. It wasn't really profound, but it, in the moment, it really struck me. And I thought to myself, wow, there's so many 
parts of my life or in different relationships, I hide different parts of myself. That was the insight. When I'm at work, I hide a particular part of myself. When I'm with this person, there's a different part of myself that maybe is only reserved to a close friend. And I just started having this sense of all these different selves with all of these different people. And I thought to myself, wow, maybe truthfulness is about asking myself, where am I hiding and why? Right? Where in my life do I feel contracted? Am I hiding the truth of who I am? Do I not feel comfortable with that person or in that circumstance? Is it just because of, and whatever the answer, but that really moved me. I thought, oh, this might be an interesting way of exploring truthfulness is where do I feel like I have to hide away or hold back the truth of who I am? Where do I feel I can't be fully expressed in my life? Am I really being truthful and showing up? So that struck me when I was looking at how can I apply this to my, to my own life? And so the last thing I wanted to say was just, let's remember that these qualities become the eightfold path, right? These qualities become the path, right? So appropriate attention, where do we see that? We see that in mindfulness, right? We see appropriate attention in wise view. Truthfulness, we see this in skillful action. We see it in the precepts. Heedfulness and appropriate attention, we see that in investigation, in curiosity. Samwega, that urgency, we see that under skillful effort, under energy, right? In all of these, we see them sort of percolating up and becoming the path itself. We see them as qualities of these other folds that eventually we start talking about. So when we look at these, that's another question I would encourage folks to, to reflect on is when you look at these ideas, just ask yourself, where do I see this in the Eightfold? Where do I see this as an actual fold of the path? And you'll see that they mix and match all over the place, right? All over the place. And even appropriate attention, right? The four foundations of mindfulness. In this moment, what is most skillful? Where do I, where do I put my attention? That's the question. It's right there in the actual teachings. So that's another way to look at this so it's practical and not uh, so abstract. I think I'll end there. Thank you, my friends, for your kind attention. I hope that puts a little bit of a bow on all the stuff we've been doing over the last few weeks so we can see how important these qualities are. They're just really cool when you start to get into them. I've really enjoyed the last four or five weeks of getting into these because I've really asked myself sincerely, like, well, what is it for me to be heedful? I mean, I don't know. And it's just an interesting question. You know, what is it to keep suffering close to my heart in a way that's skillful? And I was looking at, you know, some, some Vega and I was like, yeah, where do I find it's harder to touch down on suffering? Is it in my, my daily work life? Is it in my, inside my head? Is it in certain relationships? Where do I find that the heart pulls away? Where do I pull away from the suffering most frequently? And can I lean in with some observance and some interest in truth there with some heedfulness? Can I lean into that? And where is that? And so the Buddha always talks about that. A skillful practitioner asks skillful questions, right? In this moment, what is it to be here now? What, is that, what does that mean for me in this moment? For those who have to go, I bow to your kind attention and your willingness to be here, part of Sangha. We'll see you next week. For those who can stay, we'll do a little meta.
take a couple long, slow, deep breaths, returning to full body awareness with an open heart. What would appropriate attention be like for you in this moment? What truth is rising in this heart and mind in direct experience? We remind ourselves That although we practice for our own well-being, our real aspiration is that our awakened hearts and our liberated minds will have a positive impact on everyone we come in contact with in this very lifetime. May all beings share the fruits of our practice our kindness, our joy, our compassion, and our well-being. Let us wish that all beings are free from harm, safe from suffering, that all beings know true compassion true joy and true delight in this lifetime. Attuned to our hearts, grateful for the practice and for each other, Let us conclude this evening by answering this question. In this moment, if I could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what would it be? Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. 
This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.